You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. You want to open up your copies of God's words or turn them on to Psalm 63? Though our love is often cold, he will hold us fast. So even as we look to God's word this morning, reading about how our souls thirst for him, some of us are disappointed at our maybe lack of feeling that thirst, and some of us may trust too much in the feeling of that thirst. Either way, our God's going to keep us. He's going to hold us. He's going to sanctify us. And so because he's promised to do that, as we open his word, let's, let's go to him and ask him to do for us what he's promised that he'll do. Our great God in heaven, your mercies are new every morning, and you've given us this day, this day of rest, this one in seven, to find our hope, to find our peace, our rest, our assurance in your beloved Son, in whom you are well pleased, and by faith you've placed us in him. We are righteous because his law-keeping has been counted to us. You are delighted to wipe away all of our sins by pouring your wrath out on your Son and counting us forgiven. Lord, as we approach your word, as we even confess, our love can be oftentimes cold for you. Some of us feeling very ashamed because of circumstances uh, in our life, because of sin, because of the suffering that we experience. But Lord, you are delighted in your people. You have made it so. And so God, as we open your word, Lord, help us to believe that. Show us in your word that you're delighted in us and we can rest. Show us how our souls will rest in you for all of eternity. And because of that, we might live differently uh, this side of, of heaven and earth. And so, God, we, we entrust you with this time. Lord, we pray that you would fill me with your spirit, Lord, with your passion, with your goodness, even as we preach your truths. And you have made us good soil. So we pray that we would be good soil. You have opened our ears to hear your word and to receive your word. So help us to hear and to receive this morning. We offer this in the name of of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, before we begin, I'm going to read God's word for us from Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night, you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, and they shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. 
in the book, Finding God in the Darkness, Arthur, uh, author Bradley Gray, he creatively describes and articulates that suffering and God are just mysteriously intertwined. See, we naturally forget that rather than our suffering being unknown to him, our darkest days are precisely where he wants us to meet him, to know him, to see him. You see, our present darkness and our extremely broken circumstances are the situations exactly where God in the flesh came to restore. As Job said, in the midst of his chaos, I know that my Redeemer lives. My heart faints, but I know that my Redeemer lives. And he pins his face on the fact that somehow in eternity, with his very eyes, he will behold his Savior. And so even in the wilderness, David, often in the wilderness and in some deserted occasion, penning these psalms, says that his soul thirsts for God. says that his soul thirsts for God. And before we get into understanding this psalm, we're going to walk through it, and I'm going to spend most of our time meditating on the things that we pull out of this psalm. Sort of broken down into two sections, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 9 through 11. But we're going to walk through this psalm together and sort of reflect as we walk through it. And then once we're completed that, we're going to just sit a little while and meditate on the goodness of our God and on how we are in the wilderness. So section one here, verses one through nine, and verse one, David says, oh God, you are my God. This, this is important before we even get to our thirsting and our yearning after the Lord. The God of heaven and earth has made himself David's God. Not by accident. It's not by reluctance that God promised David a kingdom uh, that his descendant would sit on a throne forever. It's not with regret that God made himself David's God. And so David, in the midst of this wilderness being kicked out of Jerusalem, he's away from the sanctuary. He's away from worshiping the Lord, from the presence of God, and he's in the desert. Somehow have, God is going to pull off everything he promised, but it doesn't look pretty, and he says, you are my God. And because of that, because God made himself David's God, what does he say? I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land, he's using this analogy because he's in the desert. And so he's saying, just like there's no water around, it's dry, it's deserted, it's, it's searching for water to just pierce the ground and soak it up. He's like, my soul is thirsty for you. Augustine uh, is quoted saying, you know, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. When we fail in Adam, a part of the fall, our worship and our seeking to satisfy our souls did not change. That part did not change. That stayed intact. Now, who we sought to satisfy our souls and what we sought to satisfy our souls certainly changed because we became slaves to whatever sinful desires we have. And we will seek out of this life anything and everything that we think is just going to give us pleasure and satisfy a desire. And because God has made himself David's God, and we'll get into this more, David says, I thirst after you. I seek after you. David's heart will not stop until it rests in God, and that's because God has made himself David's God. And so earnestly, he says, earnestly I seek you. Your translation, if you're not using the ESV, it may say early I seek you. Uh, either way, when you're in the midst of chaos, you've had those moments in life where there's a circumstance that has causing you physiological responses of just anxiety and your mind is racing and you can't stop. What's the first thing you think about in the morning? That stuff. What's the things that you think about right before bed? That stuff. 
So because God is our God, He has made our souls to long for Him. So even in the midst of our chaos and our anxiety and our wilderness, He says, earnestly, I seek Him. So you probably have that experience that you're, you're fighting your flesh and your anxieties and your worries. And at the same time, in your heart and your mind, you're like, Lord, I know that you're enough. I know that you promised to be here with me. I am just not feeling it. And and we're fighting. We're earnestly battling our doubt and our distraction and our worries at the same time that we're in the wilderness. And closer than the Lord feels our anxiety and our cares and our worries. And so I am saying all that to say that this earnestly is painting that picture. It doesn't mean that the wilderness turned into paradise. It's actually that because he's in the wilderness, just as earnest as he was ready to return to the sanctuary, and just as earnestly as he was probably uh, wondering how this would all work out, he's earnestly thirsting and trusting in the Lord himself. Early I rise to fight my battles of anxiety and worry to say, Lord, I know that this is in your hands. So earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you. And so where does he go, though? In the wilderness, stuck. Verse 2, he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So even situated in this wild and hideous place where the horrors and destitution would be enough to distract all of us from meditating and praying to God, he exercises his mind and his heart to behold the glory and the power of God. How? in the place that God's presence dwelled, in the sanctuary. At the time, it would have been in uh, the tabernacle where you would show up to worship the Lord, to learn about forgiveness, to learn about the Lord's power in all of redemptive history, to learn about His glory in a substitute, in His Messiah that would come. And so David in the wilderness is looking back. I remember the sanctuary. I remember your glory how you are working all things out for your people. I remember your power and your glory. And so he says, because your steadfast love is better than life. So somehow, as the Lord in his providence has redeemed all of his plan of redemption and all of his power uh, in the Redeemer himself, showed to us in the sacrificial system, showed to us in the laws that he gave Israel, David remembers all of that, and somehow he ends up at the steadfast love of God. In all of that, David somehow lands in verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life itself, my lips will praise you. It's not just better than some aspects of life. It is better than life itself. Life at its best with all of its wealth and health and honor. We could live a thousand lifetimes with the best of the best of the best. And it will not compare to dwelling with the Lord. Eye to eye, face to face, beholding His glory. Living life in the smile of Yahweh. Knowing that He's delighted in you and that all things are working out for your eternal good And and in fact, the heart of the Creator planned a universe where you're going to spend forever with Him. But when we think of ourselves as well provided for this side of life, we feel no disposition toward the mercy of God. We often are just so comfortable. Our needs are just so met. And the desires of our flesh, they don't seem that bad, and we usually get them, and that's fun. And we have no appeal to the mercy of God, except that we've been convinced that we're sinners, right? We've been convinced that he's our only righteousness. And yet we we sort of still have this vibe where, but the rest of life is just kind of just me and fulfilling my desires. But when in fact, we enter into the wilderness, when circumstances don't go our way, when the very thing that we didn't realize we were hoping that much in is taken away, when the the thoughts of, well, this part of my life is going really well, and so when that's taken away, when uh, my marriage 
is just on the fritz, and I never thought that that would happen. When I have stumbled again into a sin that I hate, and, and I'm just, I'm scared that I'm going to keep doing this. I need help. When financial circumstances just seem to be at a place where I just thought I'd, this wouldn't be this way. Somehow, suffering and God are meticulously connected, and this is how he has to wake us up to see that his steadfast love is better than life. I don't get that either. It's a, it's a hard truth. Life is very transient, though. We don't live life like it's transient, and that's sort of our problem. We live like this is all that we have, and so even in the midst of suffering, what we learn is that God's love and his mercy is forever. And so what does David say? So I'm going to lift up my hands, and I'm going to bless the name of the Lord all the days of my life. In verse 5, he says, my soul will be satisfied. He did not say that his soul was satisfied. He said his soul is thirsty and his heart faints after the Lord. He remembers his, his power in, in all of redemptive history and his glory in the Messiah. And he knows that the steadfast love of the Lord, which is who God is, he is steadfast love, is better than life, is better than life itself. I know that my soul, verse 5, will be satisfied. A soul hopeful, hopeful in God and full of his favor is embodied in what David says, this marrow and this fatness. It's feeding on the best of the best. So even in the fact that he's in the desert, that his soul thirsts, and he's remembering redemption in the Redeemer, and he lands at the fact that God is love and God is better than life itself. And so he's going to bless the Lord as long as he lives. He knows that his soul will be satisfied. And so I'm going to praise him with joyful lips. What's hard for us, I think, is that it doesn't say that my soul then ended up being satisfied in all of that. In all of directing his prayers and all of his efforts toward remembering the truth. He even landed on the fact that his steadfast love is better than life, but he doesn't say, and therefore my soul is now satisfied. But we would all like to think, leaving here, that because we're here, we're just going to experience a deep satisfaction that's just felt and it's just going to carry us on. That would be, a, that would, that would be really good if it happened every time. But oftentimes, that satisfaction is still by faith. It is still by faith. It has begun this side of heaven. The satisfaction that our soul finds in the, God, in, in the Lord himself, in Christ Jesus, it has begun. But it won't be co completed until we get across Jordan's stormy banks and we enter into Zion. So now, with joyful lips and light of Zion, David says, I sing. I sing with joyful lips in light of Zion. I know that I'm going to be satisfied. I have made to thirst after you because you've made yourself my God. I look at your glory and your power, and by faith, I know that I'm satisfied, but it soon will become a reality forever. And so for now, verse 6, I remember you upon my bed and I meditate in the watches of the night. The ESV puts the comma after verse 5, and other translations, I think, have it better that verse 6 is actually leading into verse 7, that I remember you and I meditate on you. According to what? You have always been my help. You have always been my help. God's children have never not had what they need, what they needed. We have never not had what we needed Again, the problem that we have with this, because we're in fallen creation, is that that does not mean our circumstances change. That doesn't mean that our circumstances get better. That doesn't mean that things end in the best way possible. And we have a hard time thinking that we have what we need, that the Lord will always provide for what we need. In fact, being his children means that we always have what we need. 
then that not equating to just circumstances getting better is a difficult reality for us. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, verse 7, I will sing for joy. You see, all of our life, all of David's life, he's only known the mercy of God. The mercy of God in a common way, and then he's only known the mercy of God in a redemptive way. And so he lifts his hands and he praises him. But he meditates on the Lord, and he has this personal experience with him. He has this personal experience on his bed and in his meditations, thinking of how God has been his help thinking of how he is in the shadow of God's wings, that God is his protector. And he says, my soul, verse 8, clings to you. Connecting it to verse 1, because God has made himself our God. Because he's been our help, because he's made himself our protector, our souls cling to him. And if we still don't understand that this depends on God's faithfulness to us, the next phrase, my soul clings to you. Why? Because your right hand upholds me. Because your right hand upholds me. Now this is, for my money and what I think, there's a couple phrases in here that make this whole psalm just glorious. And this is one of them. Because your right hand upholds me. Why is the right hand of God so important for us? Why why is it so important in the scriptures? Why is it important for us to understand that this is why our souls cling to him? This is why we thirst after him. This is why we have found that his steadfast love is better than life. It's because his right hand upholds us. The right hand of God is a place of honor. It's a place of uh, glory. It's a place of power throughout Uh, the scriptures. But Exodus 15, 6 says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So his right hand has sort of been this image of power and protection of his people. The glory uh, that he has for his people and therefore he protects them. He shatters the enemy. Isaiah 48, 13 says that My hand laid, my right hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. So now we hear that his right hand created the world. His right hand not only protects his people, but now his right hand is described as creating the universe. And just to let Scripture keep speaking to us, Paul says that, He worked the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What did Christ go? Back to the right hand. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly paces, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he's made himself our God. Even though David is in the wilderness, he says, you've, you've, you've made yourself my God, and you have made me to seek after and thirst after you, and I faint for you, and I know that your steadfast love is better than life. Why? Because your right hand upholds me. And we know that God's right hand, we're talking about redemption here. We're talking about the point of creation is that God planned a universe where he would die for his enemies to make them his children and they would spend forever with him. We're talking about the right hand that not only created the universe, but was the word that became flesh and dwelled with his own people. His own people knew him not. And he emptied himself of all glory in order to place himself under his law, fulfill all righteousness for us. And of course, raised from the dead. Here's a very important piece as we're understanding that his right hand upholds us. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about redemption later, but his right hand upholding us 
it's always going to point to the work of Christ. The work of Christ has been accomplished. And now how do we experience, receive, and live in the work of the Lord Jesus? Well, by faith. Uh, and how does the Lord sustain us? Through his church. So David, interestingly enough, in the wilderness, thirsting after the Lord, wants his soul to be satisfied. What does he think of in verse 2? What does he think of to remember the power and the glory of the Lord? The sanctuary, where God instituted all of these pieces that would show his people what he's like. So just a little tangent here on the ordinary means of grace and what we do on the Lord's day is that we remember what the Lord has done for us and, and we confess our sins. We are assured of our forgiveness. We sing truths to one another. And part of coming here is not just simply that I have an experience with the Lord. We do have personal experience with the Lord. We show up to church, though, and our neighbors, our brothers and sisters need to hear us scream that God is going to hold us fast because there are people that showed up this morning who don't have it in them. The best they could do was show up here. And the person on your row is listening to you sing and, she's, and, and watching your faith He's looking at you proclaim the truths from, from the scriptures. We're proclaiming the Trinity. We're singing these songs. And that brother or sister is saying, man, I feel like you're holding my faith up. I need somebody to hold me up. So I showed up here today. Because I do feel like I'm in the wilderness. And, and, and my soul does seek for God, but it's not really a comfort to me. I'm, I'm upset. I'm mad with my circumstances. So then I have all kinds of shame and guilt about what the Lord thinks of me. And I show up here and I hear you and I see you believing. I see you coming to the sanctuary, beholding the power and the glory of God. And I remember yet again that he's going to hold me fast. This is where we come to be reminded that his steadfast love is better than life. This is where we come for food, for our thirsty, our, our hungry souls. This is where we come for the water of eternal life. This is the sustenance that's, that, that's going to keep us going. This is where God has given his church pastors to watch over the flock and hold their hand as we cross the stormy banks of Jordan into Zion. We all hear the singing in Zion. We all hear Revelation 5 and 21 and 22 and the new heavens and the new earth. We can hear it. We know what it's like. But we're on the stormy banks that half the time feels like a deserted island. So we show up here and we're reminded over and over and over that he will hold us fast. That he who began a good work in us is going to complete it. That we who used to, uh, maybe we were, were saved at a young age and, and the Lord kept us from it, but maybe we were, you know, not raised in church, not saved at a young age, lived life in the gutter of the world, uh, following all evil de desires and devices. He has changed our hearts. That we are longing and, and, and we're fainting for and we're thirsty for eternal life. We're thirst. Our eyes just long to see our Savior face to face. Sometimes it just doesn't feel like it makes a difference in our life, though, because our circumstances are like drowning us. I know that you're my God and I can feel that I earnestly seek you, but you seem so far away. And so sometimes you do show up on the Lord's day and you have the saints hold up your faith and keep you believing in one sense. And we all remind one another how the Lord has been our help. He's been our help in the past. He's helping us now and he'll help us all the way to Zion. Because we are in the shadow of his wings. Because our souls cling to him. There is no other place that our souls can cling. You cling to anything in this world and your soul will actually not find anything to cling to. Everything it finds to cling to, it uses it up and it's left still thirsty, still hungry. But we cling to the right hand of God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ.
And so what is, how does that impact our life? The next section of this psalm talks about the results of that right hand. Not only is he saving us and keeping us and holding us fast, all of our enemies are going to be defeated. All the enemies of God's people are going to be defeated by the king. Those who seek to destroy David's life shall go down into the depths of the earth. And we're talking about hell here. Those who have consciously set themselves against God's anointed. They have willingly and freely hardened their hearts against God Almighty. And so they have gone against his king, kicked him out of Jerusalem, and they're trying to take over the kingdom. And what David says is for those who seek to destroy the life of God's anointed, there is judgment. They're going to be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion of jackals. They're going to be left for the wolves in the desert. Their carcass will be eaten by the animals. But the king shall rejoice in God. David's talking about himself. But I will rejoice in the Lord. And all who swear by him shall exult. We're going to come back to this and meditate on this piece. But for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So for David, of course, the physical enemies that were pushing him out of his kingdom were destroyed one way or another. And as we read this, we're thinking about the enemies of our soul is not flesh and blood, but it's spiritual enemies. It's principalities. It's elemental spirits of the world. It's the kingdom of darkness, which is waging war against our souls, even this very moment. But even in this kingdom of darkness where even the Lord himself calls Satan the God of this world, even in, quote unquote, Satan's world, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. So whatever wilderness we feel like, and this wilderness may last the rest of our lives. I have no idea. Circumstantially, what your life's going to feel like or be like or how things will transpire. But what we do know is that even in Satan's world, Jesus wins. Because all who swear by the Lord shall exalt in him. So at this point, I want to make a brief comment and then just move on to our meditations. We've, we've kind of made our way through the psalm. And I don't know how you felt. Maybe you read Psalm 63 this week and you looked at that first verse. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And you might have thought, you might have instantly just felt a little shame and guilt because you're not sure that you actually feel your soul thirsting like that describes. Like, I don't know that I feel that way. I don't feel my soul thirsting after the Lord like that. And we sort of we had a little bit of fear, like, oh, am I doing something wrong? You know, okay, how can I get this? Like, this is how we, you know, I've gone through the Psalms. I've tried to point out our natural thinking when we read these. And maybe that was one of yours. Maybe it was that, I do feel thankful that I seek the Lord, uh, but sometimes I don't find that much comfort in the fact that I feel myself seeking Him, but I don't know. I don't feel that reciprocated from Him. It's like David. I know David says that it wasn't satisfied that he will be satisfied, but I feel myself seeking Him to no avail. Sometimes is what I feel like. I'm thirsting. I'm trying. I'm getting up, meditating, having quiet times. I'm doing all the. Th- I'm showing up to church. I'm. Uh, fellowshipping with the saints, and it just feels like there's no, feels, the Lord just feels so distant. So maybe I can encourage us uh, with these meditations. But before we head there, I want to encourage you, if that was your thought, that verse 1 is what the Holy Spirit in your soul prays to God. This psalm opens our mind to what the Holy Spirit is praying within our souls. You've been created new, and you have a new longing. And the Spirit within you is saying, I thirst for the Lord. I faint for the Lord in this dry and weary desert. It's an identity thing. This is our identity. We're no longer thirsting primarily and uncontrollably for the things of this world, but our thirst is for the Lord himself because he's made himself our God, because he's been our help, because he's our shelter, because his steadfast love is better than life. And so 
going to these meditations, number one, here's what I want us to think about. Still suffering and still in the shadow of the wings. Still suffering and still in the shadow of his wings. Saints, it's important to realize that being under the protection of God's wings does not promise us that we won't experience terrible things in this life. It doesn't mean that we're not going to battle mightily against sin, against the same sins. It doesn't mean that we're not going to experience suffering. It does not mean that we won't experience tragedy on demonstrable levels. But what is very curious to me is that when we experience these things, we all know that to be true. But when we experience the suffering, we believe all of the lies. We believe that God just either doesn't care about us, he's sort of passive, or we're just overflowing with disappointment. We're either disappointed at God or we're just overflowing thinking he's disappointed with us in the midst of our suffering. We believe these lies. Much more, it's hard to believe that God is in the suffering with us and that we can run to him for comfort. So why is it so hard to run to God as a refuge and as our strength in this life? Well, a mom told a story of her son, James, and it so clearly displays what we need to hear from this psalm. She says, James rarely sat still. He was so full of life that he either ran or bounced everywhere he went. And he was fiercely independent. I do it. I do it. I do it myself. Well, one day, James had an unfortunate mishap, and it was serious. Sparing the graphic details, he had a major incident involving his eye. And he instantly knew, I'm way in over my head. And so, where do you think he went? Mom! And he runs into mom's outstretched arms. You see, he knew his crisis was too difficult to handle on his own. He needed something bigger. He needed something wiser than himself. And he knew it. That's half the battle, right? And in being an adult, his mom checked off the bigger and the wiser boxes that he needed in his time of crisis. And What's very interesting is that as they boarded the ambulance and they headed to the hospital and they checked into the hospital, James' immediate concern was not his healing, the healing of his eye. See, his mom had no medical degree. His mom couldn't do surgery that he needed. And all the professionals that are around him that could fix the problem, he clung to his mom. In the desperation He longed to feel safe. In the extreme fear, James clung to his mom for confidence. Why did he know that he could run to mom and cling to her and that she would be confidence and that she would be safe? Well, it's because of the years of love shown in action, the years of feeding him, the years of tucking him in for bed, the years of nursing him back to health, when he was sick, the years of presence, the years of faithfulness that showed, James, I love you. I'm for you. I'm going to keep you safe. So what's the antidote for us having such a hard time running to God as our primary refuge and strength? The way James ran to his mom. Well, besides the fact that we're weak and we're frail and that we're fickle and that we're sluggish and our faith is small, we desperately need to understand the heart of the Father for us. We desperately need this. The more that we grasp God's heart and his actions toward us, the more quickly we're going to run to him. I'm not saying it's ever going to be easy. But I think that we have this ability to have all these truths that we know about God and we sort of hang on to them. Then there's this whole other side of God himself and his heart and his delighting in us that we sort of separate on accident and just naturally. Think about this when you think about the heart of God. 
For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is Colossians 1. The reason I bring this to your attention is because God himself, I'm about to say something that none of us really understand. God became a man. God himself became a man. And none of us are really thrown back by that because it is, it is, it is so vast, the humility from God to humanity, that we don't even have a category to even understand that. And it pleased God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit to dwell in the human, truly human, truly God, Jesus Christ. He was pleased to humble himself and put on flesh. Why? To make you his children. This is the heart of God behind redemption, behind all of our theology, behind all of our doctrine that we have so well articulated is the heart of a father that was pleased to dwell in Christ. All the fullness of God dwelling in the Lord Jesus and through him reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The Lord Jesus, the God-man, whose very word spoke all this to existence, he enters into this world, places himself under his law, and lives a perfect life. Not just to be your example, but to be your righteousness. And then every ounce of judgment that you and I deserve for not loving God, just simply the fact that we all agree that when we read verse 1, my heart longs for you and clings for you and faints for you. We were all, we're, we're believers in here. and We're just like, ah, I wish that was more of my mindset. That right there tells you we do not love God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. And so what happened? The father was pleased to send God the son to put on flesh to reconcile us to himself. We were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So he was pleased to dwell in the Lord Jesus to accomplish redemption. Why? So that we could be blameless, so that we could be holy and above reproach. Generally, no, before him. The whole point is that he wants us in his presence. And so he made it happen. This is the heart of the Father who wants you in his presence. And so he made it happen. So whatever health diagnosis, whatever financial hardship, addiction that's ruining your family, trauma caused by someone who was supposed to protect you, faced with grave danger, with disappointment, and with tragedy, we all stumble upon the same question. Who can help me? Who can I cry out to when I cannot help myself? I, I pray the Lord would bless this. God is your refuge. He is your refuge. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our strong tower. He is our shelter, our very present help in times of trouble. And he is always ready to help. And so week after week after week, we show up here to have our faith stirred up by each other, to be strengthened by the means of grace. As you hear the doctrines that come across these speaker systems, behind that is a heart of God who sought out his enemies, who smiles at you even now, who is delighted in you. So although we don't understand and our heart still faints as Job, Week after week, our testimony is this. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that I will make it across Jordan's stormy banks into Zion because his right hand upholds me. And so number two, as well, I want to further meditate on the heart of God, is that this entire psalm revolves around the unstoppable, unswerving, loyal love of God. This whole psalm revolves around the unstoppable, unswerving, loyal love of God. Let me summarize the psalm. God made himself the God of his people. He's food for our hungry souls, and he's the water of our thirsty spirits. 
and he's revealed his power in providentially accomplishing redemption. And his glory is seen in his justice and in his righteousness and in his Messiah, where love and justice meets. And his love and his loyalty toward his children cannot be stopped, and it will never end. And his children shall worship his holy name forever because all of their wants are satisfied in him. For he has been his, people, his people's help. And despite what their circumstances present on the surface, God's children are never, ever, ever outside of his sheltering grace, even if that means death. Because his promise, his promises never fail because God the Son humbled himself and came to us in the wilderness, and because he accomplished redemption, we shall rejoice. We shall rejoice now, because in the resurrection, we will have God forever. And this God who is our refuge that we just talked about, he is the same God that planned redemption from eternity past. He's the same God, let me give a few examples, that promised to grow his people Israel He said, I'm going to grow you as numerous as the stars. Then they end up in slavery in Egypt. But he still grew them. And then he splits the Red Sea to display his power in their weakness. And then Israel was in the wilderness after the Lord brought them out of Egypt. Now the Lord had showed them while they were in Egypt that when the blood is applied, death passes over. He showed them that He is tangibly faithful despite and through trials of various kinds. Yet in the wilderness, despite all of that, Israel felt far from God. And so they worshiped other gods. They turned to deities that did things their way. One that would do things the way that we like them done, according to our misplaced human desires. And just like our father Adam, they failed to submit to the majesty and the glory of God. And here's why I bring that up. In Psalm 63, verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God. The end of that is all who swear by him shall exult. Now what does that mean? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord teaches his people all about love and obedience to the one true God. And here's what he says in verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve him, and by his name you shall swear. So in this whole chapter about love and obedience to the one true God, what's in this is a part of serving and loving the Lord is that we we acknowledge his glory and his majesty in all of our words, that we swear by him, by no other God, by no other truth, but Yahweh alone, but God alone. So I bring this up because in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 10, Jesus is in the wilderness, far from God, and Satan tempts him. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13 that we just read. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and angels came and were ministering to him. So we can either go with the lies of the kingdom of darkness, and we can that, that tell us to pursue in this life what only God can provide, or we can acknowledge and honor and submit to God's majesty and glory. The problem is Adam failed, and he was in paradise, Israel failed, and they seen all of these tangible faithfulness and glorious uh, works of God, and we have failed. And what we just witnessed and saw is that the Son of God in the flesh went to the wilderness. And as our substitute, he submitted himself to the majesty of God, and he served him only, and he swore only by the name of Yahweh, and he resisted the devil for us, and he succeeded in obeying God. And he sang this psalm, Psalm 63. He sang Psalm 63 as steadfast love in the flesh. He sang it as, he sang this one as the king who would defeat all the enemies of the people of God through his resurrection from the dead. 
And he sang it as the one who emptied himself and sings it now to the Father as the one who satisfies our entire beings. But we are pilgrims on the way home. His steadfast love is better than life itself. And his right hand will uphold us. And we will rejoice because the king is going to put an end to all evil. And we're going to make it over the river Jordan into Zion because of him. And our hearts will be satisfied forever. No more longing. No more sinning. No more suffering. I'd like to end this time with the lyrics of this song, Day After Day, Jesus Reigns by City of Light. In the morning as I pray for the day that you have made, I have hope and I have peace for your presence is with me. So whatever comes my way, Lord, remind me of this grace. I can face it with this hope. Jesus won't forget his own. In the evening as I rest, I recall your faithfulness, how you never left my side from the morning to the night. Now until the dawning sun be the light that leads me on, I can face it with this hope. Jesus won't forget his own. Always before me and always beside me, my shepherd is always close. Morning to evening, each day that I am given, my shepherd is always close. For tomorrow, this I pray. Father, help me live your way. Every breath and every word for the glory of the Lord. If that day should test my faith, or fill my heart with songs of praise. I can face it with this hope. Jesus won't forget his own. Let's pray.